Hello, everyone. Laurel here. I hope you had an excellent holiday season and are having a great start to 2023 so far. We have such a special treat for you today. Tick the box. We've done it. We have snagged a historian, a real historian, like from academia, (laughs) to sit down with us in the Smoke Circle for a two-part series to talk about Indigenous representation in popular movies. In this part, we talk about Wakanda Forever, the Indiana Jones series, and even touch on Netflix's Ancient Apocalypse. Now, I know we all talk about how much we love each episode that comes out. They're like our kids. But this one is... It's so good, and it was such a pleasure to record. We are still high on the excitement of it. And you know what? We're really excited to share it with you. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another episode of Hightailing Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get together, get high, and surprise each other with a story from history's vaults of the weird and the wonderful. I'm your older sister, Laurel. Joined by Katie. And today, folks, we have a very special guest with us. We have a real-life historian in our midst, course director of history at Coventry University in England, Dr. Darren Reed, joining us. Hey, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. We're so thrilled to have you. And this has been such a lovely connection that has been made. He saw one of our posts about some of our stories that we did on Indigenous history in the month of November. And he reached out and said, this is what I do. I'm a professor and this is what I teach and this is what I'm passionate about. And I was like, do you want to maybe talk to us? (laughs) Question mark. And he was very gracious to give us the time and come on the show. I think you're being very gracious by having me because that's absolutely what I was angling at from the start. <laughs> so don't you worry. This is my pleasure to be here. Darren, what is it about history that has made you go, this is the course of my life now. This is what I want to pursue as a career. Okay. So I, there's two answers to that. So the first one's really cheeky and flippant, right? And it's why do you love your husband or wife or partner or boyfriend? So you just sometimes connect with something. And for me, history... Um, especially histories of indigenous peoples um, or suppressed minorities, they just speak to me. When I wake up and I think, you know, what can I read or do or engage with today that's going to excite me? That's always the thing. Um, so that, that's one part of it. J- j- there's just an undescribable love that I have for learning about not just things, but especially the past. I think by learning about the past, you learn an awful lot about the human condition. The past is kind of like the greatest laboratory that ever was. And you've got however many hundreds of thousands of years of experimentation on the human species. And you can take people and put them in different scenarios and different apply different stimuli to them. And what happens to them under those conditions? Well, we look to the past and we find out. So understanding about what's happening in the world today or even the future of the world, I think really benefits from that. The second answer is that what engages me about it is the, the mystery there, the lack of knowing, uh, or even the things that we do think we know a lot about actually often turn out to be quite contested. And understanding what we actually really know about the past versus what we think we know about the past always a very fascinating thing. Um, where do we get our sources from? Who do we listen to from history? You know, so much, for example, let's say you're interested in African-American history. What an amazing set of histories that is. But so much of it is written by the invisible hand of the slave master, people who look a lot like me, I'm afraid to say, um, because they were the record keepers and they 
not only did they write more documents than most other groups in society, they had the means and the influence to have those documents preserved in the archive. Because the archive, of course, is implicitly racist and sexist, and for and this is important for British listeners, a classist place where working class people, where black people, where brown people, where women, where trans or non-binary people are routinely excluded. And once you start delving into that and you realize how little we do know about some things and these amazing stories that are there that not aren't being told but haven't necessarily been fully realized or brought to the public's attention i mean what more could a person want i i'm sorry i'm a little like yes absolutely sitting over here we're like so like this is amazing you just hit for me at least you just hit the nail on the head of why I, I mean, even though I'm not in academia, like why I love history so much and why I love these little stories of, you know, we say the weird and the wonderful just as a sort of cheeky blanket thing. But but yeah, it's those stories of these marginalized peoples who I mean, you really you really just get the bigger picture of what's happening in history when you get those actual accounts and those stories from people. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. So you said that and I was like, Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Amen. Hallelujah. That's it. That variety of human experience and how any two given people come from different or even similar backgrounds facing the same set of circumstances respond to them in such different ways or have such different experiences about that and be able to explore maybe one event or one set of events from a multitude of different perspectives. It just completely reshapes how you think about your interactions with people or other other countries or things that are happening in the world today. And you can understand it so Mm. much better. And I'm always amazed whenever I have an opportunity to do things like this and speak to people is when you can start drawing connections between things that they didn't necessarily know were connected. And it just, I think, brings other people into that learning journey you're going on to, which is why I wanted to thank you guys, because um, programs like this are what excite people's imagination. It gives a place for people to come and talk and to listen. Um, there'll be people, I imagine, in the dishes, going for a walk or whatever they do when they listen to your fair podcast. But they will be learning and they'll be learning about things they didn't know they needed to learn about or didn't know they wanted to learn about. So for me, what you guys do, I just think is so important and, and underappreciated as well. So on behalf of the, the academic community, thank you, Katie and Laura. Oh, well... You're very welcome. Let me brush my shoulders off here. <laughs> well, no, thank you. That's what we aim for is to make that feel accessible and feel, um, you know, telling real stories, quote unquote, you know, telling the, the real history as best as we can, but making it in a way that makes people go, oh, wow, I can see myself in this or I can understand this better than just sitting in, in a classroom and having to, you know, memorize the dates and the, you know, events, which is why people always go, Oh, history was boring. Like it's, it's not, it's so full of stories and you can connect so well. Yeah. And people say history is boring. I'm like, Oh, then you didn't do it right. Yeah. I think the key word is story. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is Laura and Katie. I think you're both right. It's, It's story and that's what you get right. And one of the reasons for now historians often sort of shrink away from that because we shouldn't turn something that isn't a story into a story just for the sake of entertainment. But as human beings, we're probably hardwired for story and this will become relevant when we get onto the main topic later but we are literally hardwired for story we can only interpret the world based upon story and i can prove that to you because every one of us every one of your listeners and i've never met i dare say any of your listeners or even you guys in real life but you are all the main character in your own life story 
you think about what you are going through. You're the protagonist, and there's probably an antagonist. She may or may not literally be called Karen. Like, you know, there's always <laughs> someone in your life who serves that sort of role. And you look back over your life and you'll say, okay, so the, the, I had some circumstances that I faced. I hit some challenges. I had some good times, but then I hit some really bad times. And then over the course of a period of time, I was able to get over that and return. And then that led to more positive change in my life. And at different points, depending on who dear listener you are, you'll probably empathize with different points of that, you being on that journey, because we cannot help ourselves but storify the universe. We live in a, a world that's complete chaos. The universe doesn't exist to satisfy our sense of ego or self. And yet we individually are all capable of making ourselves the center of a story that really, really is only interesting to us. So when you communicate things via the medium of story, Katie and Laurel, you're not doing a disservice to anything. You are, as you quite rightly point out, doing exactly what history needs when it comes to communicating it. You're speaking the language of the, the universal language of story that unites the entire human race. That was a big compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. I'm here to, to, uh, <laughs> to make you guys feel good. I, I was told Thank to bring you. alcohol or something. Am I allowed to open it now? Oh, yeah. You can crack oh, that God, open yeah. if you wish. Yeah, absolutely. I feel oh. bad drinking alone, so I hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, here. Here. Laurel's like it. I just don't want anyone to feel bad themselves. There we go. And with that, <laughs> we, have, we have now entered into Hightailing Through History. So what is your your role there at Coventry? Yeah. Okay. So I am the director of the undergraduate degree. So my role is to help facilitate my colleagues in exploring the past and all the ways they want to do, support them as they uh, choose and develop the teaching for our students. Um, I obviously teach myself, so my main role is to teach things on, for example, the undergraduate in our master's program, uh, so about American history, about uh, the history of civil rights is one thing I do, and of course the history of decolonization and indigeneity, especially at master's level, that's sort of my main area. And then of course there's all the, the other stuff you do at universities, uh, being in endless Zoom meetings and uh, <laughs> right, you know, actually doing some actual history sometimes. I like to read several indigenous communities and I'm writing works with those same partners so that that sort of thing we heard you crack it open what are you drinking this evening i'm drinking a copperberg mixed fruit cider so nice. it Ooh. tastes just it tastes just like soda it's fabulous oh. <laughs> i'm pretty sure i've had one of those yeah 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 i used to drink beer and lager when i was younger things that I'd deliberately taste bad and then i realized if you drink things that taste nice you can enjoy it but I'm 40 now, and very proudly, this small can here is me halfway towards a very sound night's sleep. So that's uh, I'm not a fa famous drinker. <laughs> so I, I will warn you, there, there might come a point where, like, after a shockingly small amount of alcohol, I start slurring my words. You just oh, have to edit around that as best you can. That's all right. That's all right. People will just go, oh, maybe it's just his accent. That's fine. We'll, uh... <laughs> right. Oh, you, you'll notice the difference when it happens. Because I'll be, and another thing, let me tell you about the past. <laughs> you just keep it coming. We love it. Mm. Katie, what are you drinking tonight or imbibing in? I don't have it yet. I'll have it uh, when we take our intermission. Um, oh, okay. I'm just going to have a pour probably of one of the bourbons that are around. Because as I looked around, uh, there's no open alcohol for me to have. So I'm going to have to <laughs> crack one open. dive into one of Blake's. I know that he had a couple of 
uh, he had a scotch out last night, but I looked at that and it's like 121 proof. I was like, whoa, Nelly, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so I will be having a pour of bourbon. I'll let you know when that happens. Currently, all I'm imbibing in are cat cuddles. So she's half on my lap and you guys are on the other half. So here we are. Perfect. We'll share. Yeah, I did think there wasn't a lot of space. Katie, what <laughs> type of bourbon are you going to have? It'll probably be either the open maker's mark, either the four roses that's open, or I might even go to the special Jack. He bought me a sing. There's a single barrel of the Jack Daniels, which I know is not bourbon. It's whiskey. I think it's a mash whiskey, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I only know this because I spent so much time in Kentucky when I was, you know, but we talked about this a bit briefly before the show, but I spent so much time there and what, one of the best things is going on all the bourbon tours. So, so did you like all bourbon? these names to bring it back? Oh yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good. I like bourbon. Bourbon's one of my favorite drinks and people, a lot of people are like, Oh, interesting. I didn't think like women really drank that. I was like, I think they do. Laurel might not, but I did. It's not my, my thing. I wish I did because it looks kind of cool. And not to say that, you know, drinking is cool or anything like that, but my husband actually has also quite a bourbon collection as well. And yeah. uh, and he just, he has the glass and he puts a little pour in there and he- It looks very classy. It looks good. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. And then I don't like it. For me, I, uh, I decided I need a little afternoon caffeine, but I do have a little bit of weed here with me as well. I didn't want anyone to feel by themselves. We were talking a little bit earlier about the accessibility of history and, and making those connections with people. And so, folks, tonight, our show format is going to be a little bit different. Instead of sharing individual stories, we are all doing a group project together, if you will. Darren has given us a list of uh, a few movies that would be interesting conversation about Indigenous representation in movies. And so we're going to go through some movies tonight, such as Dances with Wolves, the new Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever, Avatar, Velocity of Z, Indiana Jones. And we're going to take a look at some of those and discuss the portrayal of indigenous peoples and what the representation is like or, you know, in a lot of cases, not like. Which one do we want to start with first? We want to start with uh, Wakanda Forever? Yeah, I think that's a good starting okay. point. Yeah, absolutely. I thought... Um, the new Black Panther movie was great. Uh, my kids seemed to really enjoy it as well. So it passed that test, although my nephews who are the same age did not. Uh, one of them apparently fell asleep in the cinema. So divisive <laughs> and controversial, but I'm a, I'm a big Last Jedi fan, so I'm used to that. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very heartbreaking movie. You know, the shadow of Chadwick Boseman sort of hangs mm -hmm. over it. But by far the thing that really pricked up my antenna was um, the fact that almost all of the antagonists in it are Indigenous Americans, Native Americans, and they belong to a group of people called the Mayans. And what's so interesting is that this new mythology has been projected onto just a fairly standard comic book character, the Submariner, or Namor, as he's uh, sort of more widely known. The filmmakers have been very deliberate in their choice to show conflict between peoples in Africa with, with an indigenous American community, both of whom are fighting in some respects for the same thing, both of whom are fighting for something that's maybe a little bit different. And as a step forward in terms of representation, it really is tremendous because it wasn't that long ago, right, that we would sit, all of us in this room maybe, with our granddads on a Sunday afternoon and watch someone like John Wayne just shoot 
Native Americans as like they were zombies because Native Americans were employed in cinema in the same way that zombies are employed in the 21st century. They were there to fill a space. They were there to be antagonists and so on and so forth. Whereas with something like Wakanda Forever, you end up with this incredible representation of a very, very, very complex society that many of us are sort of aware of but don't really know anything about. Let me give you an example, right? So cast your mind back to 2012, right? Not so long ago. And do you remember people predicting the end of the world? And they had the exact yes. date of it in 2012. Mm -hmm. Mayan calendar. Well, Wasn't it the December Mayan 21st? It was something like that. It was something very much like that. But yeah, they, uh, you know, I remember this from being a teenager watching the finale of the X-Files and mm -hmm. Mulder reveals to Scully that he knows when the world's going to end because the Mayan calendar came to an end. And I mean, what an amazing literary trope. And as we got to 2011, 2012, there were movies released about you know, so-called coming apocalypse and so on and so forth. And then, of course, nothing happens because... <laughs> Well, why didn't it come to an end? There's many reasons, but perhaps the most important is the mind calendar never predicted that. The mind calendar was cyclical and time is eternal as far as minds are concerned. So it was people who misread the calendar. That would be like imagining maybe, say, 8,000 know, 8, years in the future, if we're still using the same calendar or maybe we're using a different calendar. People try it on our calendar and they think uh, December 31st, on the year 9,999, is the end of the predicted end of time, whereas not, mm. it's just our calendar clicks over to the year 10,000. It's not quite the same, but it's pretty much the same thing. And what, what, that, what that really showed to me is the industrial complex that surrounds misinformation of history and the ways in which um, media producers often, not always, but often will package things up in a way that is exciting, that is, which is fine. Right. You have to communicate with an audience. You have to give them what they think they want. Right. You know, this is exciting. This is sexy. This is dangerous. That's all fine. But and this is a big but when you start lying or trying to clickbait your audience, that's when you cross the line. And so going all the way back to 2012, the minds are on our mind. And then just 10 years later, their main characters in one of the biggest movies to be released in the post pandemic era. And they're not the antagonists in the movie, but they're not bad guys. They actually have incredibly relatable motivations, which are linked back to the the colonizing process and the what we now as historians understand to be the destruction, not quite of Mayan culture, but certainly of Mayan civilization up to that point. Just as the fictionalized people of Wakanda are a response to questions about what would Africa have been like had mm -hmm. people who look unfortunately quite a lot like me drawn tens of you know at least 10 million of Africa's sons and daughters from it for Katie and I having not seen the movie um that was the idea that I had about it as well too what I was hearing it's interesting I want to absolutely give credit where it's due because recently I actually around the time that you and I met I became uh, TikTok friends with a man named Kevin Garcia who yes is a writer for Marvel and uh, he had posted a clip of him speaking on another podcast and he was, was uh, speaking of Latinx representation in this movie and how they were really excited about there being this representation in the first place. And something that he brought up, which <laughs> I banked that because I'm like, okay, when I see the movie now, I'm going to have that lens with it. But he was talking about how in Wakanda, it's uh, this advanced civilization 
advanced technology, they they have really cool stuff, basically, and this vibranium and, and how that powers, you know, their city and their technology. Then conversely, we have Namor. Is it all, is it basically, are they still calling themselves the Mayans in this as more, uh, or is it? Yeah, pr- yeah pretty much. Okay. I mean, so, so this kind of a weird story thing. Essentially, they all somehow learn to live underwater. Okay. The, 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 yeah. the whys of it, I don't think, matter very much. <laughs> they discover something, and then they can breathe underwater, and then they essentially flee the Spanish, the colonizers who come and right. you know, decimate the rest of their, their, their peers. Okay, so, yeah, then that makes sense, because he's saying, okay, yeah, they can breathe underwater, and that's... Uh, you know, a new technology or a new skill that they have for their survival. But yet they are still shown more as more primitive society and are not as advanced as other ones are. Now, again, not having seen the movie, I'm just regurgitating what his observations were on that. And I thought that was kind of interesting, which also echoes another movie that we're going to be talking about later that I made that connection. Absolutely. I think that's such a, an, an interesting point. I, I, I think it's valid, and I think it's a valid criticism, but I don't have a huge problem with how they were portrayed in it because, as a historian, it's, that movie's sort of like a gateway drug for people who want to learn mm-hmm. about Indigenous peoples and the Mayans. And what it does do really well is ask, what would Mayan civilization look like 500 years later if it's left comparatively undisturbed by the outside world? And there are aspects of that that are really quite authentic. So right near the end, for example, and this is such a small thing, but Namor's wearing a, a tunic. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, like the attention to detail and how that person's dressed. So mines are very, very complex fabric weaves, for example, and with specific colors and so on and so forth. Uh, the iconography on the wall behind him in this scene is very reminiscent of the types of um, stone artistry you'd find in Mayan cities and so on and so forth. So by them not being as advanced, quote unquote, technologically, um, they are able to replicate a different type of non-conformative, non-white society. And and that that to me is really interesting. So I, I do take that point on board. I think that is a really interesting critique, but it's not one I would level too hard at the movie. Sure. Okay. Thank you for that insight. Yeah, because... Um... Like I said, it was just one of those things when I heard him say that, I thought, okay, well, interesting. I'll, you know, you're looking for that when you hear some of those mm-hmm. things, you kind yeah, of yeah. apply that. He's, he's definitely not wrong. And so, of course, we're looking at the Mayan civilization, this fictionalized way in a comic mm-hmm. book movie. So what were the Mayan people actually like? Absolutely. So the Mayan people, like all indigenous American people, had very, very complex social and cultural orders. Uh, we would call it a civilization, very, very complex set of societies the mayans were one specific version of it with thousands of years of heritage for some listeners when you think about an indigenous person maybe close your eyes right you you might picture someone not wearing very much clothing maybe carrying a bow and arrow if you're thinking about it in a north american context that person's probably on horseback um you you know the certain images and very very well-worn icons and those have been worn into us by decades, if not centuries, of popular media, uh, comic books, novels, stage plays, and, of course, cinema. In reality, pre-contact America was an incredibly diverse place filled, just teeming with different civilizations. So where you are right now, Katie, isn't far from a place called Cahokia, 
which was the site of the largest city built by the Mississippian culture, which existed probably for at least several hundred years before contact was made with Europeans and survived for a while afterwards as well and probably collapsed because of its own internal reasons rather than outside pressure, although the spread of the disease may have exacerbated that. Then, of course, you go to the other end of the Americas and you've got the Incan civilization, for example, the Aztecs, and of course, uh, the Mayans, who we're talking about right now. So Mayans, Mayan civilization dates back thousands of years in total. Um, we, we could talk, for example, the pre-classical Mayan period starts in the year 1500 BCE. So it's about 3,500 years ago. And that's where the, the greats, by the end of that, is when they start building the great pyramids and the great complex cities that we associate with them. They were, they developed very, 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 very complex religious social orders, which emerged out of complex trading relationships and networks. So the Mayans traded far and wide. That allowed them to borrow from other cultures like the Omec, for example. They're another Central American people. They borrowed their gods, they borrowed parts of their religion, parts of their way of living and so on and so forth. So just like in Europe, if you went to London or if you went to Paris or any other city at any given time, uh, you would find that people there are borrowing from each other in what we'd call like an economy of ideas. The same things are happening in the Americas. The Mayan civilization really peaks sort of after about the year 250 BCE for the next few hundred years into the what's called the classical period. And there's lots of complex things happening. Mayan civilization is so old that parts of it collapse and then re-emerge all before contact is made with Europe. Wow. If you ever hear that phrase, hidden histories, we hear that a lot in documentaries and usually <laughs> sort of clickbaity things. It's not hidden history, but it is ignored history. So that, that's, that's maybe a little insight into who they are. During the classical period, when they developed the very famous Mayan calendar that did not predict the world would come to an end in 2012. Again, like I say, very, very complex social structure. They practice warfare habitually, and that's something that Wakanda forever gets very right. So one of the things that the Mayan people there turn to is war. And the reason, and there's a lot of cultural reasons for that. Um, European societies, historically speaking, have been very invested in the idea of Warcraft, for example. So that's, that's nothing, that doesn't make them less or better. It just makes them different. So they were, uh, war was a very important aspect of their society as well. So lots of conflict, a way of spreading influence. So too was human sacrifice. Um, in, in a similar way, though, human sacrifice is a part of European history as well, although we don't necessarily think about it in the same way. So, for example, amongst the Mayans, someone who gives up their life for a human sacrifice would enter essentially the speedway to heaven. They'd go straight to the best place in the afterlife. In the same way that a Catholic or a, or a Jesuit mer um, missionary would go straight to heaven if they were martyred for spreading the word amongst an indigenous population. So there are a lot of very significant differences, but there are also a few similarities as well. There's often a parallel with European society. So if anyone's listening thinking, oh my goodness, human sacrifice, all this war, Trust me, in our own way, Europeans and our descendants, like you, you fair folk, we've got a very comparable history. Yes. Well, especially the Vikings, more ancient so as they went on in time. Look, they did, but it was very much the same. We're like, you volunteered, man. You're like, yeah, take me. I mean, not all the time, but ceremonially right. speaking, very similar. Right. Human sacrifice is on the same continuum as human death. 
And in every society, we deal, every society deals with death in its own way that tells us a very significant amount about how people think about life. So, for example, so human sacrifice is quite extreme. That, that, that is definitely on one end of the spectrum, but on the same spectrum as things like cannibalism, for example, which is also associated with sort of this part of the world. So the word cannibal comes from Carib, which were a group of Native American peoples encountered by Columbus in the Caribbean, right? Now, why would anyone eat human flesh, right? That's a, a naturally repugnant thing to us. But there's actually a lot of social customs around it. I mean, in terms of like making sure your enemies don't attack you, you know, eating them is, is, puts people off. Right, way to do it yeah yeah so so you could develop internally in your own society a custom whereby if i consume my enemy i take their strength mm-hmm. but the side effect of that is also that you take their will to fight because it's one thing to die it's another thing to know that your corpse or the corpse of someone you care about will be desecrated in the most um violative way so it's a violation of the bodily integrity even after death you know, that gives people pause for thought. And the existence of these systems can moderate the amount of military conflict that happens between different societies. So from our perspective, we're like, oh my goodness, human sacrifice, cannibalism, but actually there is a reason for these things to happen. And in the case of the Mayans, things like human sacrifice was about feeding into a very, very, very complex hierarchical society, which of course, and we live in a very complex hierarchical society, uh, there are definitely people at the top to whom different rules seem seem mm. to apply at least some mm. of the time. And uh, no, we don't make human sacrifices to them, but different types of sacrifices are made in the names of the icons that we hold up or cherish or or, or otherwise. You know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, so uh, following, you know, what, what's happening on that platform? Yes, indeed. Not, we're not quite at the level of human yeah. sacrifice on Twitter, <laughs> but, but it doesn't feel like we're too far away either. Give it time. <laughs> indeed. You've mentioned actually quite a few things, that, uh, you know, different tropes that have cropped up in a lot of these movies that we watched, and actually a couple of them that really stick out and happen in a, a franchise of the Indiana Jones movies. How does that representation change? Because I've got some very glaring examples in my head <laughs> okay so disclaimer before we start i love indiana jones and and i'm not in any way trying to cancel it but i do think it's really important when you have discussions about these sorts of things we do so in a nuanced way mm-hmm. and you can love something and be really critical of it of the same time peter pan would be mine i love it but super critical of it super critical indeed yeah absolutely and nothing is perfect and if you're looking for problematic free media you are not going to find it because media is always produced by people and people are always flawed and so we see things being reproduced on screen and so before we even talk about indiana jones take a step back and think about its two principal creators right george lucas and steven spielberg so let's start with george lucas we know george lucas grew up sat in front of a you know a very small 1950s TV set watching these great black and white serials glued to it because that's exactly what he made when he made the first Star Wars. In fact, he tried to license Buck Rogers, one of these very popular old serials, to, to make that into a movie and he was denied the license, so he just essentially made his own, which was Star Wars. Indiana Jones very much follows in that tradition. And George Lucas's fingerprints are all over. And what I mean by that is a boy who grew up in the 40s and the 50s, 
idolizing certain images which tended to be of white men doing certain things who were turned into heroes for certain types of exploits are just everywhere. So you can find prototypes for Indiana Jones in people like Percy Fawcett. You can find um, uh, the the name escapes me, the gentleman who discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. My girlfriend's going to kill me when she hears this. I know. I'm really mad. Screaming at the video on it. Yeah, absolutely. As historians, it is important to note that we don't remember all the facts. You know, we just, we, we've got, we've got sort of black holes where we know information <laughs> should exist. Howard Carter. Yes. How, that's it. That's Howard it. Carter. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a lot of prototypes because throughout the early 20th century, the hero explorer became a character, if you like, in Western media. Okay. Um, people like Howard Carr, people like Percy Fawcett from the Lost City of Z, um, who were renowned and world famous, at least in the Anglophone world. And he'd go on tours talking about discoveries and all of these and showing amazing artifacts people had never seen before. The one that really caught on was, of course, ancient Egypt, especially in Britain, where I live. People were obsessed with ancient Egypt. And that obsession is sort of like, expanded outwards so by the time you get to the 1980s and this new franchise has been put together indiana jones you have to understand you know this really roots back to the creator of star wars sitting at home in his parents lounge watching this type of adventure and having this iconography burned into him the second person i want to talk about of course is steven spielberg emphasis on the spielberg he's of course jewish and one of the key things that Indiana Jones does and does perfectly is it skewers the Nazis. It is a Jewish revenge fantasy. Yes, it and it certainly has been, here's the thing, right? There was a point not in the, in the not too distant past where I didn't need to say Nazis are bad, punch a Nazi in the face. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, that's maybe, I wouldn't say necessarily controversial. We've sort of moved a little bit beyond that, but it does need to be pointed out. That actually, media that does say the Nazis were awful is something we should celebrate. So on the one hand, you've got a filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, who's Jewish himself, who's very, very interested in questions surrounding the treatment of Jews historically, particularly in the 20th century. See Schindler's List, for example, mm -hmm. who for his part turns this into a Jewish revenge fantasy. And then you've got George Lucas, who for his part is turning this into a pulp fiction style adventure serial, which it very much looks like, it very much feels like. And then within all of that, all of those noble intentions, many mistakes are made, which is fine, because that's what human beings are all about. We have the noblest of intentions, we make mistakes. So the first, probably the, the, the scene that really springs to mind when it comes to Indiana Jones is that famous opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, once he's stolen the idol of whatever made-up tribe they came up with, <laughs> running through the booby traps and so on and so forth. And he's confronted by a group of indigenous people with bows and arrows and I think blow darts under the command of the nefarious, um, the nefarious antagonist for that movie. Indy makes his escape and so on and so forth. So to go from Jewish revenge fantasy that skewers the Nazis for exactly what they are, the monsters, the historical um I, I, I can't think of a word stronger than monster, but you know, I'm sure there's one out there whatever we can call them, it shows them for exactly what they are, also reproduces the same tropes that were being sold to people like Lucas and probably Spielberg as well when they were young. The indigenous people are primitive. 
easily manipulated. Uh, there's, there's quite a famous comic book called Tintin Goes to America, where he encounters Native Americans and they're just as easily manipulated by white non-Indigenous actors. That becomes a trope that we see all throughout um, the media. Mm -hmm. The thing is with tropes or with any lie is they're always effective, most effective when there's a, a grain of truth. Mm -hmm. And within all of these tropes, there's always something. We know for a fact that many people who look like me, with you know, pale skin, come from Europe or one of their descendants, have manipulated indigenous peoples in the past or have used their position of relative privilege to gain power amongst them. So on the one hand, it is appropriate for the press to, you know, to say, hey, look, this is problematic, this opening scene, but it's not appropriate for them to talk about it as simplistically as they often do because there's actually a very long history of people who look like me behaving in a way that deliberately manipulates and plays upon the hopes and fears of indigenous peoples and you know there's a sense that this trope is damaging because it shows they're easily manipulated actually what it really should show is it should be damaging to the white people for being so manipulative mm -hmm. so one of the key you know, key things, if we're looking at Indiana Jones, that opening scene, is that it's the bad guy. It's Belloc, you know, who, who's doing wrong in that situation. And he continually manipulates people throughout that. The, the biggest issue is how do we think about that representation of these people who are sort of largely undressed, um, making noise and, and shooting arrows? I mean, it's not entirely without historic reality. Right. Um, most, you know, a lot of Central and Southern American indigenous peoples didn't wear clothes, but especially in places like the Amazon. And what they did wear would be relatively limited. Why? Because if you're in a jungle, your clothes are going to get torn and you're going to get dirty very, very quickly. So if you wear clothes, you're going to be constantly taking them off and cleaning them. And what ended up happening in, for example, the Amazon basin is people would wear virtually nothing because it was just easier to clean their skin. In fact, if you go to the northeast of Brazil today, people will still shower like many times a day more than any of us in this room. I suspect. I don't know that, but I suspect. <laughs> so, like, you know, I'll, I, you know, I'll shower every day. I get up, I have a shower. Maybe if I do, maybe like a workout later in the day or, do you know, do something like that, maybe I'll have another shower. But, you know, usually it's like one, maybe two showers a day. Whereas in northeast of Brazil, it's actually much, much more, maybe six to nine showers a day. And the reason for that is that that's, a cultural artifact from their indigenous history where indigenous people would constantly be bathing themselves. Uh, the weather's great. They don't need to wear clothes. And the easiest thing to do is simply clean the dirt directly off your skin rather than try to clean clothing that's already getting torn. Right. So the issue with yeah. Raise the Lost Ark isn't that it's got indigenous people shown in this way, I don't think. The issue is that it doesn't have indigenous people who are shown in a different way. So they're quite the passive actors. And that's I think that is a valid critique of that that film. You know, the first thing I thought of, because I rewatched um the opening of that, because I remembered it, but then I was like, well, I don't remember specifically how the people looked or how they showed up, because it's been a while since I've seen Indiana Jones. It was on VHS, so <laughs> so I rewatched it, the opening sequence, those first ten minutes. And when he tumbles out after the boulder cobwebbed up looks and like you say they're all standing there do you know the first thought i had obviously i'm the youngest person in the room i looked at it, i was like oh my god it looks like pirates of the caribbean so have you seen though okay literally i was like oh my god it looks like exactly the same design as they use there i was like hmm, okay 
like that was like my only thought i was like well they look like the people that jack was hanging out with yeah absolutely they tried to eat him. i i'm not as okay on my pirates of the caribbean films as i should be so i can't talk in too much detail about that but that doesn't surprise me it does make me think of king kong do you remember the peter oh, jackson version that yes. released oh of course yeah yeah absolutely so i remember the indigenous people i've only seen that movie once you know you yeah. know i felt like i got all i needed to on that one <laughs> viewing from that yeah. particular piece of work uh but I, I remember that very distinctly and again well where does the idea of cannibalism come from well we actually don't know how widespread cannibalism was in the americas probably not very because what ends up happening is stories about cannibalism spread though and Europeans in the 16th century, the 17th century are, forgive the pun, hungry for stories about cannibalism. They think, I'm sorry. No, it was great. It's I love puns. <laughs> they, they think stories about cannibalism are just so exciting. And actually, in yeah. the 16th century in particular, Europeans are so fascinated with indigenous Americans. They are shipped over to Spain, to Portugal, to the papacy. They are, they pr- do performances in the cities. I mean, most of them end up dis- dying of disease. They become the basis. So Thomas Moore wrote the book Utopia. Um, I, oh goodness, I think maybe 15, 16. Don't quote me on that internet. I'm forgetting. But you know, certainly the early 16th century, largely based upon stories he had heard about indigenous Brazilians. So the the Utopia that exists in our popular culture, this idea of a communal perfection is actually based on indigenous lives as they were understood in the 16th century. And you add in things like cannibalism, you add in things like, you know, adventure. And all of a sudden, and what's great about about this that's happening, just like we are interested in it as historians, is it's actually happening someplace. These are real stories happening over there in some place called the New World. I don't even think they would have been called the Americas by by that point. Not yet. I thought the America was, oh God, which explorer was that? We're named after an explorer, Laurel. Did you know that? America Vespucci, I think. Oh my God. Oh, girl. Well done, Laurel. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) That's it. No, Actually, I just remember that because in fourth grade, we did a explorer's project and that was who my guy was. And that's how I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing the things we learned from childhood. But it's what's really interesting about that story. So the reason we named them or the Americas were named after Amerigas Vespucci is because he's the one who wrote letters across Europe about this new world. And as he's exploring, he's documenting it and he's also helping draw the maps. And Europeans are desperate, essentially those with money, disposable income, are desperate right. for maps to see what the world looks like. And you know, his name would be written all across these things. And so mm-hmm. he became closely, so closely associated in the European imagination, especially amongst the nobility, with this new land. The new land was given its name. Like Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, He's the Kleenex that's of true. explorers. That, but that's the interesting thing is that he wasn't in any way remarkable beyond that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think if we think about the role of storytelling or movies in history, is how much do we get that we think is real comes from stories that are just continually being retold. If you think about the original opening sequence, um, Indiana Jones is going through an abandoned temple that's all booby-trapped, right? So there's obviously a lot of technology, ancient technology hidden within this. And that actually references something I bet none of you have heard of, which was the myth of the white indigenous person in Africa 
and in the Americas, okay? So what happened was as, as white people went to Africa and as they went to the Americas, they increasingly started to discover evidence of very complex societies, sometimes societies that they met firsthand, like the Aztecs or the Mayans, but maybe the ruins of Cahokia, for example, right? Evidence of undeniable complex civilization. All the indigenous people around them were complex, undeniably complex civilizations, but Europeans uh, would often be blinkered and wouldn't see or acknowledge it. So they see what they recognize as evidence of civilization. And they have to ask themselves a very simple question. Who built this? And are the indigenous people around us now their descendants? And what would happen over time is they would increasingly come to the conclusion, no, they were not indigenous people. Or if they were indigenous people, they originally came from Europe. And this is where you got a lot of myths. The lost tribe of Israel, for example, are frequently brought up in trans-American cosmologies to explain why this set of runes exists or why this civilization exists. And one of the reasons they did that was to push down the reputation of indigenous people living in, say, 1862. So in 1862, you know, very racist time, would you acknowledge that the tribe that you're trying to kick off their land are the descendants of people who built a structure that you recognized as complex hierarchical civilization? No, if you right. if you make that connection, that's a problem. So you say no. What we what we instead say is they are not the descendants. They probably killed the original people who probably came from Europe. So one of the things we see, and uh, and I I remember reading and seeing this for the first time in the wild in some eight maybe eight seventeen eighty seven in the Kentucky Gazette. Someone writing saying I've heard, not here, right, not in Kentucky, and not next to Kentucky, so Missouri. But a little bit further west than the bit of Missouri we're in contact with, right? There's mm -hmm. a tribe that speaks Welsh. And this myth was all around North America, that there was a tribe of Native Americans who actually spoke Welsh. And that that was the language they were speaking. Because Europeans were obsessed with the idea that the true peopling of the Americas, the true peopling of even Africa, happened because people who were functionally white had gone there, built these civilizations, and then been destroyed by the same indigenous peoples that white people were then trying to displace. So when you go back to Indiana Jones and you watch this, so you've got an abandoned civilization, and anyone growing up in the first half of the 20th century would have probably recognized that the people who confront Indy outside of that temple, they're not the, the descendants of the temple's builders. They don't have a legitimate claim to the icon in his hand because they are probably the people that killed, or their ancestors are probably the people that killed the actual builders of this temple. Mm. So that's that's the sort of the discourse or the conversation wow. that's happening in that movie that most people are completely oblivious to. So that's what they want us to believe. Um, that's not that's not what the producers of Indiana Jones wanted you to believe. I don't think they even had a clue what they were doing. <laughs> I, like, and that's not, that's not an insult to them. It's just, you know, this stuff is fairly deeply embedded in the study right what they were doing is reproducing exactly what they saw when they grew up you know yeah and the mayans just like the ancient egyptians arrest for a long time at least arrested the european or white imagination because of the relative complexity of their society their calendar for example guys next time you have a drink like it's almost christmas right you're gonna have a drink of uh, warm cocoa or hot chocolate at some point mm. Like yeah. you're fund you're drinking a Mayan drink. Mm -hmm. Yep. I did know that. Yes. Good, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I always sort of bring this up to my students when I'm talking about this, because they don't, especially in Europe, it's a great place to talk about 
you know, do you guys like have cornflakes or, or popcorn? Popcorn is literally a Native American food, right? Yeah. Um, or any corn-based food to some extent is right. Native American in roots. And then, of course, peppers and all these other things. It's not mm-hmm. something we think about. But yeah, the Mayans were incredibly advanced, demonstrably advanced in racist European eyes because they produced pyramids, because they produced tombs that could be raided, because they produced complex art or valuable artifacts that Europeans coveted. That made them the exact type of fodder that someone like George Lucas would try to write in to Raiders the Lost Ark. And he's not trying to reproduce racism. He just can't help himself because he, like all of us, is the product of the society in which we are raised. Mm-hmm. And right. all of us will always, at some point in our lives, fail, not because we're bad people, but because we are the inheritors of an incredibly complex and nuanced colonialist system that most of us don't really understand. Uh, you know, Again, I'm sitting in the United Kingdom. And one of of the great areas of my research is Brazil. And almost no one in the United Kingdom knows about the ways in which our country tried to exploit Brazil. Now, of course, you're American. You're sitting there thinking, well, I can imagine how the United Kingdom, how Britain would try to exploit another country in the Americas. Okay, right? You guys have got some experience (laughs) of that. But Hmm. most people, you know, even maybe in the United States, do you understand, Hmm. you know, Britain tried to control the Brazilian economy, not to colonize it directly, but to exert power over that country and in a way that directly and very negatively impacted the lives of many, many indigenous people there. Mm. So intense, dude. Sorry, um, is this okay? It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. No, it's good. We're so quiet because everything you're saying is super interesting. So I'm just sitting there like, this is glorious. I'm really worried that when I stop talking, you're like, the fuck's he talking about? (laughs) This isn't what we agreed to. You can tell me that if that's true, okay? I was sitting there thinking about how I bring this stuff up to poor Blake all the time because, like, I always tell him, like you said, it's a Mayan drink. I'll say that. And he goes, oh, okay. And he just looks. He goes, more colonizing at work? I was like, I mean, it's all around you, baby. Well, this this is it. Yeah, colonizing, you know, it's, it's a part of who we are because we're mm. part of a colonizing history. And that is something we need to be aware of, but it's not necessarily something we all have to be ashamed of daily, right? You don't, don't wake yourself up oh, and yes. look in the mirror and accuse yourself of committing atrocities. But knowing things like that and saying, okay, so if, the more I know, the more I can understand about this, and the more I can contribute to the world in a positive way that doesn't reproduce these patterns. I think okay, that's a really that's good thing. that's what my goal is, is to teach yeah. him about these things. I'll tell him, I'll be like, hey, you know, just so you know, this harkens back to these people. This was yeah. their thing. You know, we do that with rice, everything around here. Maple syrup mm-hmm. comes from the Ojibwe people. I'm pretty sure there's a bourbon called Buffalo Trace. Do you guys have that? Oh, there sure is. Okay. So do you know where it gets its name from? No, I don't. I remember them teaching us in the tour and I was like, this is so fascinating. Of course, now I can't remember what it is. So I would love to. Darren's going to tell us, man. Please. (laughs) We're going back for about 10 years and I'm now half a cider in. So let me see how well I can uh, remember this. But It just makes it better. Indeed. A trace is a path, right? So yes. the Buffalo Trace in Kentucky was was a path that had been pre-beaten down, not by buffalo, but by woolly mammoths. So during the last ice age. Oh, so the yeah. Buffalo Trace was originally what a, a path that was cleared by mastodons, by woolly mammoths. And then obviously they went extinct. The ice age ended. And then buffalo, you know, bison moved in and they mm-hmm. started moving that path. And as a direct consequence of that, the indigenous peoples who lived and worked in that area began using those traces, traces or paths, as a part of their regular hunting. 
So by the time that white people arrive in Kentucky around about the 1770s, well, I really say the 1760s when they first start exploring it. So people mm. like Daniel Boone, for example, right? When they first arrive there, they start following this pre-existing system of paths or traces. And they're following in the literal footsteps of the buffalo who are being followed on those paths, of course, by Native Americans who rely upon them um, as a large part of their protein, um, who are literally following in the footsteps of mastodons or woolly mammoths. And some of the roads in Kentucky still follow these original traces. So Buffalo Trace is a is named after a path that's tens of thousands of years old that was originally beaten beaten into place by woolly mammoths, then used by buffalo, which was then in turn used by Native Americans, usually uh, people like the Shawnee or the or the Cherokee. Um, who would use Kentucky as a hunting ground more so than a place where they lived. It tended to be a hunting ground because the Shawnee and the Cherokee were always at war, frequently at war with each other. Uh, mm. And they would follow the buffalo through these traces. And then, of course, people who looked like me arrived, and then the traces were turned into motorways and roads and bourbon distilleries and so on and so forth. So next time you have a, mm. a glass of uh, buffalo trace, you can tell Blake that story in. Yeah, I think he's really going to dig that. I did not know that. That's really cool. Yeah, and it feels like a different explanation than the one I got, which yours was far cooler. So um, I love that. That's brilliant. I mean, I've definitely read that in legitimate history books. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but I, <laughs> I would probably put a lot more money on it being right than the guided tour in a distillery. All that. Yeah, no shade about like I'm, I'm throwing a lot of shades, but this is because... Um, <laughs> You know, Buffalo Trace don't send me free bottles of stuff. So obviously I'm going to go on podcasts. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're going to get shade thrown at them. So if you're listening yeah, Buffalo Trace, about? you know what to do. Call us. Yeah, right. Oh, man. Indeed. Good stuff. Yeah. Just to, to go back to Indiana Jones for a moment. Mm. I am actually very glad that you came right out the gates and you said that about Indiana Jones, because from a young age, Indiana Jones was just the coolest, just as a character. Um, and then as mm -hmm. I get older, of course, and I'm looking at these movies differently, you know, you, you go, oh, but still, I, I love him so much. And I'm thrilled about this new movie that's coming out. I'm going to sure. definitely go see that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that reckoning of you can enjoy something fictitious and understand what's happening within that fictitious story. And, you know, understand it without having that canceling or completely saying like, oh, it's, this doesn't age well. Because another thing that does come up in any of those movies is the whole, it belongs in a museum. And it's like, okay, with its people, or it belongs in a museum in the country of its origin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I mean, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got kids and you, and you want to open up that discussion with them, that's a very complex discussion to have, right? And, and kids right. love going to museums. So how do you have it? Well, you know, it belongs in a museum is a great place to have a discussion about what what an artifact is and where it belongs. You know, what you're saying is it doesn't belong in some private collector's hands or to be melted for its raw materials or, or whatever, is it deserves to be in a place where people can learn from it. Right. Now, of course, it belongs to the museum is impossibly oversimplified. And, and actually, a lot of things that are in their current museums do not belong in those current museums. <laughs> but right. I'll use this phrase again because we're on this particular podcast, but it's a great gateway drug to have those mm -hmm. conversations with people yeah. okay it does i agree yeah. it does belong in a museum but whose museum where should that museum be and there's a lot of ethics and our ethical questions go along with that and and that's something that applies you know to myself as well i i collect artifacts so i have a collection 
of materials from all around the world, from many, many different cultures. And that's something I have to sort of ask myself with this, okay, what is okay for me to have? What isn't? And what would the mechanism be that if I have something in my collection and a community was saying, oh, well, that's not cool. Like, you know, you, you've got to have a plan for these sorts of things, but oh, although the best plan is just to not acquire anything that's problematic. Right. True. Well, yes. ideally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But again, think about, you know, flip back to Indiana Jones, right? So I'm going to, talk about the movie no one talks about the crystal skull or kingdom mm. of the crystal skull so th- again lots of mayan style indigenous technology it does make it a- an attempt to sort of harken back to that earlier raiders of the lost ark uh, archetype but the indigenous people in that movie are more active than they were so they do try and sort of uh, replace that but it- it's still bogged down by george lucas's um and Steven Spielberg's fantasies about how the world works. So the whole crystal skull thing is is part of a wider white-centric fantasy that brown people can't build things without the help of aliens. Right. And you, you guys, you, you know about ancient aliens in the yeah. History Channel, or you know, this really begins with a book called Chariot of the Gods by a guy called Eric von Damaken. And most people realise that that's not a credible theory, but you know this this program's like Ancient Apocalypse on Netflix, which was, mm-hmm. they don't they don't they don't hew, hew that far off that they they are on the same spectrum as this. Yeah, I'd say so. so and that's a real problem because it completely warps what people think about these people and what people think about history. And what I say to my students is, have you ever noticed that everyone, whenever anyone says it's uh, it's aliens or interdimensional beings or whatever it is that helped these indigenous people or these brown people often build these incredible scu- uh, structures, that it is always brown people. No one ever suggested that the British needed help to build Big Ben. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people will say to you with a straight face, but Darren, how did, we don't know how they built the pyramids. And you say, yes, we do. They're like many, many slaves yeah. and very large whips. I, there's a lot of myths. You know, I mean, there's things, again, if you want to tell a lie, always embed the truth within it, right? So they say, we don't know how they built the pyramids. Like, guys, I'm a historian. <laughs> I, I barely know how to put my own shoes on. Like, my real-world abilities are so infantile and limited. It's unreal, <laughs> right? So, of course, I don't know how they built the bloody pyramids. I don't know how they build a normal house, right? Th- this is, yeah. you know, you've got to put this in perspective. Like, histo- mm-hmm. We know a lot about the past, but we don't know a lot about the past. You know, like, yeah. do, you, do you know what we do for fun? We read books. Like that, that's a Saturday that's night fun. for many of us, right? Yeah. Indeed, right? <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Like, dear listener, please continue to read. Please continue to join us in Geekdom. But, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, we don't know. We can't precisely answer how they built the pyramids because I can't precisely answer how my mum's house was built, for example. Yeah. So the alien, rather than, rather than build a perfect cube, for example, now that would be an impressive structure for a pre-industrial civilization to build. Mm. They've built a structure that is shaped in a way that it allows like a tiny area at the top to have a massive footprint to disperse out, you know, the pressure over. Yeah. It's not an engineering feat. And that's not to dismiss any civilization that's created this. It's just that mm-hmm. geometric form has a very, very, it's an over-engineered form. You don't need that large a footprint to support that type of structure or that volume of structure. There's much more efficient ways you can do it. So if mm. aliens built them, like God knows how they built spaceships because yeah, right? like they, they need to move past the triangle. They need to move mm-hmm. past the pyramid as a, as a design icon. That's actually a really excellent counterpoint to that. It's the laws of physics that they're applying to these buildings 
it's, it's a very effective way for a non-industrial society to build a very large structure where something like a cube or a sphere, now that really would be, oh my gosh, how did they build it? Whereas a pyramid, mm. they started at the bottom and they just put less and less as they went up and that worked out just fine because that's a very fundamental structure to the natural world. Yeah, makes sense. So then I have a question for you then. Uh, okay. We watched through Ancient Apocalypse. The one good thing I will say about it is it full of misinformation, like you said, but what I gleaned from it now, based on what you said, it was really cool for me to at least go look at those really cool stone structures over in East Asia and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. that's really cool for me to see because otherwise it's not necessarily something that I'll see every day or it might be difficult for me to pull up something that will talk about that. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, I, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And if it's done that job for you, then I'm grateful to it. It has done that at least. I will say, I will say this, right? Now, again, I've not seen Ancient Apocalypse. I watched the first few moments and I, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, as I was saying earlier, Everything it said in the opening five minutes felt not just wrong, but just just outright lies. Um, so I would say that how will I, how should I put this? By the sounds of things, it's spinning a yarn about a single ancient civilization on Earth that we don't know about, right? We were more advanced. Some cataclysmic event happened, and we all dispersed from one spot, and then we like essentially regrew as humanity. Yeah. Uh, okay, right, so it's fiction, got you. Okay, that that myth also depowers indigenous peoples because right. whilst it's not making the same argument that the people that inform George Lucas and, and Spielberg and all, you know, that those er, that earlier generation of thinkers put out, it's, an, it's a variation of it. So these aren't white people that have gone and built the pyramids or these aren't white people that have gone to Africa or white people that have gone to the Americas and built the Mayan pyramids and so on and so forth. These are, in reality, we're all we're all from the same base, and the base is mm. probably white. You know, that's that's the sort of the mm-hmm. wink and the nod. Um, it's a variation on that same theme, and again, that's why as soon as within five minutes of it being on, I knew exactly what it was going to be about, and I, I just couldn't, I, I yeah. couldn't do yeah. any more with it. I mean, some of it probably had some grains of truth in it. Civilizations have risen and fallen throughout human history. In fact, most people are completely ignorant of the broader human story. And that's not your fault. That's not anyone's fault. It's just that's, you know, there's a lot of history, right? So, I mean, for example, do you know who Y-chromosomal Adam is, for example? Oh, it sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you why. mitochondrial Eve. Are these names you've heard before? Okay, let me let, let me take you to school then, right? Here's here's the story. So th- this emerged in the 1990s as a direct result of the Human Genome Project. And what they did is they took samples of DNA from people all around the world, and and it's never they it's been it. and they mapped it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now what they did is they were able to see that everyone's uh, DNA converged at certain points in their genetic past, and they call these. And they converge around um, theoretical people they call Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve. Y-chromosome, so every man has a Y-chromosome, so X and Y, right? Right. So if you look at my DNA, it fits exactly within this pattern. And uh, about 100,000 or so years ago in my family tree, one of my great, 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 many removed grandfathers is a, is a person that scientists call Y-chromosomal Adam. And here's the thing, every single man who's alive today has Y-chromosomal Adam's fingerprint, so to speak, in their DNA. 
they also share the same great, 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 great grandfather. Now, women and men both have X chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And that's why we get something called mitochondria. And again, they did a very similar set of studies and they found that every woman alive today and man, for that matter as well, can find a common ancestor in someone called mitochondrial Eve. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm sorry to tell you this, ladies, you're going to have to have a very awkward conversations with your significant others later on because you <laughs> are, related. well, you are very closely related. In terms of the animal kingdom, all human beings are weirdly closely related. Yeah. Right, okay, so so maybe you don't know this, right? But no, let, let me give you a layer of interpretation, which is what historians do. Every conflict in human history, knowing what we now know, is nothing more than a family feud. Every war, every act of hate, every act of misogyny, mm -hmm. every act of racism is an act of a family fighting with itself. That. Mm -hmm. I think is the greatest tragedy you can learn. And again, th this is all information. It's all very much out there. You can do, dear listener, you can do some research and, and discover this for yourself. But again, most people don't necessarily know this, but most people don't recognize that when they, when they go out and they meet a perfect stranger or rather creepily fall in love with one, <laughs> that, that person's literally their cousin. Uh, let me put it another way. We are mm, more closely related. Really? <laughs> Isn't it just? Um, we are so closely related that, you know, most biologists, you know, it's, it's a real sort of eyebrow raising thing, how closely related um, human beings are to each other. It just got real Game of Thrones up in here. <laughs> it certainly did. But moving away from that aspect of it, what I do think is, is really important is when we think about, we, we often other, quote unquote, people, mm -hmm. we classify them as others and they're different from us. They're brown, they're black, they're white, they're Christian, right. they're Muslim, they're whatever it is, gay, straight. Mm -hmm. And in reality, we're all just cousins of a very large and deeply interbred, sorry, but that's literally what it is, family tree, and every fight we have is a fight between cousins. And I sometimes wonder if that was a more fundamental aspect of what we teach people if we when would they're get growing along up. Better. Well, I, absolutely, because I think a lot of our default positions come from like looking for difference. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. I'm a man, you're a woman, you are straight, I am bi, or you know, anything like this. Mm -hmm. Whereas in reality, we're all cousins who have in a lot of fundamental ways failed one another. I mean, and I mean not not you and I, but throughout history. Um, human beings have consistently uh, one family that continues to fail itself and largely that's fueled through ignorance so go back to 1492 what happens it's not the discovery of the americas as you guys rightly pointed out it's a reunion it's a family reunion from two branches of a family tree so distantly removed that they didn't even recognize each other so right. differently removed that one the white part the ones who look like me were desperate to explain these amazing structures and civilizations they found by somehow thinking that they were part of a different family tree and it must have been their cousins who built them. In reality, it mm. was their cousins. It was never aliens. It was never some lost tribe or group of Welshmen or whatever crazy theory white colonizers put out there. It was their cousins who built it. And those cousins were staring in the face the whole time. Dude, Laurel Darren can come on the show anytime. <laughs> That's it. I'm, I hope I'm. I hope I'm earning my keep. There's a lot to unpack. No, honestly, that is like the best way to put to put it because I think, especially, I mean, this has always been the case. I think in humanity, but um, I feel it more now, or at least in America. There's there's very much this divide of 
this and that and left and right. And there's always just that thought of how are you other than me? So that way you can be my enemy and I can argue with you on the internet or whatever it might be. And uh, I think that's an excellent example to make with that, change that paradigm of of thinking, hopefully. I mean, you know, everywhere's divided at the moment. Mm. I live in hope that we're getting gradually a little bit less divided as we sort of move further and further away from 2016, which seemed to be our real you know, a real turning point as it were. But things are changing, I think, in a positive way. And one of the things I hope I'm imparting to you guys and to your listeners is this idea of like not just being outraged or not just looking at a binary position. You know, mm-hmm. guys, if you're listening to this thinking, Darren, Raiders of the Lost Ark is way more problematic than you make out. You know what? Great. More power to you. Because I think you're probably in a lot of ways right. And I would be happy to have that conversation to you. And I'd love to hear about it. Because reasonable people can disagree. And reasonable people can have intelligent conversations that make each other think. But outraged people can't. People who are trying to one thing, you're another. Those that's yeah. when the communication breakdown Breaks occurs. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, history's become a very politicized thing in the last few years. It really has. It, I mean, in, insanely. I mean, I you know, I I mean this this is goes back to even before 2016. So there was a Scotland had an independence referendum and I wrote a piece in a newspaper about it. See, I didn't necessarily think at that time it was a good idea. And, you know, I was literally accused of being part of a conspiracy. And again, like I said to you at the beginning of the cast, like a conspiracy, like we can, you know, most historians can't even look each other in the eye. You know, yeah. we have so many <laughs> deep debates about, you know, should we think about movies as like, you know, should we be talking about Indiana Jones, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the idea that we could conspire to achieve anything I mean, like I like I said, you know, our um, our real real world capacity is also very limited. You know, you ask us what happened on a given date in 1772. Uh, there's a chance we'll know. Ask us how to change a tire on our car. I mean, there's functionally no <laughs> chance. Um, and you know, again, so understand, you know, historians, we are we are naturally political beings. Everyone is, mm. and and no historian I know would deny that. But every historian I know looks to the evidence and they will usually, you should be grateful if a historian tells you what the political leaning is, because Mm. what they're saying isn't, this is my leaning, you should believe it. What they're saying is, this is my leaning. Understand it so you can compensate for it. Because you might hear something in what I'm saying where you're like, okay, Dan, you are being too lefty, liberal, progressive, SGW or something. Okay, fine. Right. You, but you know that you know that about me, so you can compensate for it and how you understand what I'm saying. And let's bring right. the, the nuance back into that discussion. And I think history is the, the, the subject to do that, right? Because, again, when we think about these, what I call deep history, is we are so closely related. And the time spans, they don't seem it, but, you know, the, the modern human species has ex- only existed for about 200,000 years. And that is nothing. That's a no. blink in the eye in terms of the planet's history, as it were. So knowing that, I think, allows people to take a step back and think, okay, how am I going to reassess? How am I going to think about things? Guys, you don't have to vote Democrat or Republican. You can, you know, you just need to talk. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. If only people understood that. Quick pause, Laurel. I need to plug in my laptop because it's dying. And then I'll grab my bourbon. And then we can get into the real... Listen. We d- dances with wolves now. Oh we? God! Listen, there's a lot to go on here. I have so many things to say. Maybe, I, maybe I should ask you about that one, Katie. Oh man, I will definitely have like a piece that I have to say, and then you can give the educated opinion. 
but I'm definitely going to tell you. I've got, I've got some things. <laughs> I can't wait to hear it. Oh, man. Are you having fun? I mean, that could just be my nerdiness showing, but man, I just love that. And we're excited to share part two with you in a couple weeks. That'll be January 20th. We're going to be talking about Dances with Wolves, Avatar, The Lost City of Z. And if you miss us, please find us on Instagram. Our social media is all linked in the show notes. Also included Dr. Reed's Instagram and some resources that you can look into to further educate yourself on this topic. We found it absolutely fascinating. We hope you do too. We look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks for part two. And in the meantime, get money, get high, give love, and... You know what? Just go and kick 2023's ass, you beautiful little star beam, you. Bye-bye.